Father, we praise you tonight because we understand how much you love us, God. God, we know that your word says while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die on a cross for us. And Father, we, we thank you so much for loving and providing for us. Just like a father, Lord. Simply because you love us and not because we did anything. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts so we can understand your works and we can understand your love, God. And so you wouldn't have to ask us, do you not understand still? Father, we want to understand. God, show us your love in new ways. God, in awesome ways that says in your word. Father, I pray we be able to recognize who you are throughout our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys can be seated. We're in the book of Mark. We'll be finishing up chapter one right now. We've been walking through, went through Malachi and now our... In the book of Mark, I think this is the fourth week that we've been here, and so we'll finish up chapter two and just discussing as Mark writes and makes a case for and defends the divinity of Christ. And we've talked about before, Mark is writing more than likely to uh, a Roman community, if not specifically to Rome, and defending this is who Jesus is. They have this message about this man who came that claims to be divine, that claims to be the Son of God, who then is crucified for the sins of man. And so Mark is making a defense because as a Roman, you would connect that automatically with someone who's a criminal and not someone uh, who is divine or with divinity or with God. And so Mark writes to make a case. This is who Jesus is, the Son of God. And in doing so, he just walks quickly through the storyline of Jesus. So we pick up chapter 1. We finished uh, verse 28 last week. And so we'll pick up in 29. Just to catch you up real quick, Jesus has gone into Capernaum. He's been teaching in the synagogues, and he has healed a man who had an uh, unclean spirit. And then he moves in verse 29. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, so Jesus was in the synagogue. He's teaching in Capernaum. This healing happens, or this casting out of a demon takes place. They have a quick conversation. And then last week we talked about um, the crowd who's now looking had a sense of fear of amazement. There was a sense there are two different descriptions. As Jesus is teaching, they have a sense of amazement because of the authority he has, which comes with this concept of fear. And then it changes and heightens. And there's a, a deeper sense of amazement or fear after he casts out this demon. And then there's a conversation or arguments that break out among the crowd. A dispute happens and they're arguing about the authority now that Jesus is using to cast out demons. And last week we talked about when we're following Jesus, when we're, we're, we're being used for God's kingdom, there are going to be circumstances when I keep bumping the stage, when things are going to be controversial. There are going to be situations that you're going to be in that you're going to encounter that are controversial. And I just I ran through a list of things that I mentioned. And in doing so, I want to go back just real quick and, and state if you were here and you heard those things. There are certain things that I would say as Christians, we still have the obligation to take care of people, to take care of children, to take care of people who are innocent. And, and so there is still a a sense of justice. And if you weren't here last week, we were just talking about loving people and the different people that we're obligated to love as Christians and who Jesus loved and who he, who he was reaching out to and the fact that we're all broken. But in the same token, uh, I want to go back and just kind of soar up or is shore up, soar up. I don't know how to do it. I guess you wouldn't really soar anything up. Would you? You're sore. You don't forget it. 
I want to go back and just make a statement that I do I do recognize there are certain things that happen that then demand justice to be done uh, and that we need to take care of different things. But in the same token, uh, our, our call as Christians is to love people and, and to share Christ with them. Regardless, if you weren't here, I, I apologize if you were, then maybe that helps some. If not, I'm sorry. We'll move on. So Jesus says, as soon as they leave the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And so here they're leaving. Jesus has got four guys following him at this point. And it says, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. Now, last week we talked about, or maybe it was last week or the week before, I don't remember. As Jesus is calling these disciples, there is a dispute about these guys' ages. And some will argue that they're between the ages of 8 and 12. Uh, and we mentioned that Matthew in, in Matthew 9 is called by Jesus and uh, he's a tax collector. They go to Matthew's home. And so that's an argument that he's older than at least 12. And here you have Simon, which I think I made a statement last week. These guys weren't married. And I want to correct myself here because Simon obviously either is married or was married at that time because they go to his house. And there is Simon's mother-in-law, which indicates directly that the guy has been married and he has a mother-in-law who is now there living, which more than likely this woman is a widow because Simon has taken her into the home. Culturally, when you got married, they would build onto the man's uh, home that he grew up in. So his father and mother would live there. They would build onto and they would move into that house. You wouldn't move into your father-in-law and mother-in-law's house. That wasn't done. However, in 21st century America, we actually do that. We did that when we bought a house and we're building one. I got to move in with my in-laws the greatest four months of my life. I encourage all my friends to do the same. We moved into the new house early. Like we were like, no, forget it. Let's push it up three weeks and let's move in. We'll pay more. We paid more money to move out of my in-laws, who I love. But it was, wow. Right? Yes. Definitely. Definitely Pat's fault. If you don't know Pat, you're missing out. Regardless, Simon has a mother-in-law. Which has nothing to do with Pat. But Simon has a mother-in-law. It says she's in bed with a fever and they, t- uh, and they told Jesus about her. So they go to Simon's house. They're hanging out and they come to, to Jesus and say, hey, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. She has a fever. Verse 31 says, so he went to her, took her by the hand and helped her up and the fever left her and she began to wait on them. And again, this is Mark writing and is making a defense I am still in puberty. Um, making a defense, it's been happening for, I'm 31 in a week and a half, two and a half, I don't remember. The end of the month, I'm 31, and literally from the age 15 to 31, I'm still squeaking on a regular basis. It's awesome. I love it. Kids make fun of me all the time. And I speak in public, so it happens, like this is when it happens when I'm in front of more people. When I was 15, I was at church camp and I was the drummer at the camp, which made you a rock star at church camp. Um, and, and girls would flock to you, which was really cool because when I was 15, I was 5'2", and I weighed 105 pounds. And so I was smaller than most of the women, women being the girls, the teenagers who were at this camp. And so I walked into the, the little snack shack we had and just got mobbed by women, which were girls again, get mobbed by girls. So this, I'm living like rock star dream as a 15-year-old. And so I'm looking up, talking to these girls, right? And one of them asked me, she says, how old are you? And I said, I'm 15. And like just I was so confident in myself until 15 came out. Literally, I dropped my head. I turned around and walked out the door. It was oh, so I'm okay now. I'm fine. I'm very confident in myself. It really doesn't bother me. It's a good story to use when I squeak. I get to tell it. People laugh. It's great. Anyways, so Jesus is in this house. They come and say, hey, Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. And it says he goes to her and he takes her by the hand and he helps her up. 
which again, it's just it's another picture of the compassion Jesus has on people who are sick in a very physical sense. Here you have a woman who's laying in bed who has a fever. Well, if unless you're a parent and your kid has a fever, what is the last thing you want to do with somebody that's got a fever? You touch them. You don't want to get infected. Right. I mean, I have trouble picking up my my five year old who, when she throws up, she's going to throw up on you instead of in the toilet or in a bowl. She just pukes right on you. And I don't like doing that. But as a parent, I love her. So I'm going to do that. Everybody else. No, thank you. But Jesus has this compassion on people and he goes and obviously he's, you know, he's the son of God and he's able to heal. But at the same time, it just shows just the level of compassion he has for people who are sick. He goes and takes this woman by the hand and he helps her up. And then again, in this defense for the divinity of Jesus, it says the fever left her and she began to serve them, began to wait on them. She made him a meal. He doesn't even speak about it. At least Mark doesn't say in the description of what happens. He just goes and picks, picks her up and she's better. And so it shows the, the, the power that Jesus has that merely by walking up and touching somebody and the way that Jesus performs miracles plays out in many different physical ways, whether it's speaking or touching or uh, rubbing mud in somebody's eye. There, there are multiple ways it happens. But yet this one, again, just shows Jesus can reach down and, and grab someone by the hand. So she, he takes her by the hand and helps her up. The fever leaves her. And again, this defense of this is who Jesus is. He's the son of God. He is God with flesh on who comes and has compassion on those who are sick. Compassion to reach out, to touch and to heal. It says the fever left her and she began to wait on them. So she makes a meal for him. Verse 32, that uh, that evening after sunset, the people brought Jesus all the sick and demon possessed and the whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So here's Jesus still in this house. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. They're eating. And that evening, just swarms of people from town are surrounding the doorstep, bringing those who are sick and bringing those who are demon-possessed. So there are multiple people in this town who are possessed by demons. And again, Jesus being the one who has compassion I mean, this is in the evening. He's been doing ministry. He's been teaching in the synagogue. He's already gone through this whole process of casting out a demon. In one case, he goes and they're hanging out just the four of the, or the five of them with, with Peter's mother-in-law. She's making a meal. This is the downtime. If there's a time that's inconvenient for someone to minister to people, it's in the evening when you're at home eating a meal. And that, for me, I, I drove out this morning on the way to eat lunch and watch a football game and was thinking, I got to go back and we've got to do service again, which is fine. I, I enjoy doing this. But at the same time, it's an extra weight on you as to where the seven years prior that I did student ministry here, 12 o'clock, we're done. I go watch football all day, hang out and take a nap. And I feel good about that. Jesus is during a time when he should be taking a nap. But yet the whole town has come to the doorstep and he has compassion on those who are sick with various diseases and those who are demon possessed. And he is healing these people. Jesus has got himself in a position when it's inconvenient for him to reach out and to do what he's supposed to be doing. To heal those who are sick. And then it goes on and it says he drives out many demons. But also would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And this is an interesting concept. You've got multiple people who are demon-possessed, 
And it, it takes us back to when he's in the synagogue and a man comes up and says to him, if, if we go back in chapter one, um, verse 23 says, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And we talked about this this verbal confession that is made. This is the second one that's made in Mark. One, you have the father during the baptism. And then now you have in, in chapter one, this man who's possessed by a demon. The demon is is verbally make a confession of who Jesus is. Verbally recognizing clearly in front of everyone and to God, hey, I know who you are, Jesus, the Holy One sent from God, the one who has got essential divine qualities separate from humans, makes that verbal statement. And we talked about last week that this demon does not find redemption from making that statement. And so that that just kind of links us back in the storyline that Jesus, as he's casting out these demons, will not let them speak. Again, it ends with because they knew who he was. In this knowledge that's being being spoken of here, there are three different three different terms that are used throughout your New Testament to communicate a relational knowledge of someone. One is an acquaintance. Another is knowing. It's a partial knowledge and knowing through experience. And then another one is Fully knowing. This one here is is merely that of an acquaintance. Um, Paul later uses uh, the the other two terms communicating his knowledge of God, the relationship he has, and and the one being I know God through experience, but yet that's limited because I'm a man. And he goes on in a few other cases. He talks about having a full knowledge of God or God having a full knowledge of him. But here's a case where there are demons who recognize who Jesus is to the point where Jesus will not let them speak because he knows the verbal confessions will be that the same of what the, the first demon was in acknowledging who he is and having an acquaintance with, but at the same time, that does not bring them to a point of redemption. That doesn't bring them into a right relationship where they find righteousness because of Jesus simply because they've made a statement in, I know who you are. We've talked last week about the the fact that confessing and beginning a relationship with Jesus, that establishment comes with an aligning yourself with Jesus. It's not merely just, hey, I'm agreeing with this is who Jesus is. There's an agreement that, hey, I'm broken, I need God, and that's through Jesus. It's not something you work for, you earn, but at the same time, it's not merely just, hey, I'm cool with who Jesus is. That does not do the job. And that's clear in Scripture, and it's very clear here. You've got demons who recognize who Jesus is. He doesn't allow them to speak, and it's clear that they do not find redemption from Jesus. Rather, they're driven out and are enemies of God throughout eternity. But nonetheless, he doesn't let them speak, and the question is why? Why does he not let them speak? And and the next storyline is going to move, and it's going to talk about Jesus moving and and, and being away, uh, away from the crowd, and then what happens through that process and the communication he has with the disciples as they look for him and what he does next. The point is Jesus is not trying to highlight himself in what he's doing. Meaning the popularity of Jesus is not Jesus's motive. Jesus doesn't show up simply to heal people so they respond with, oh my goodness, this man is amazing. Is he amazing? Yes. Does he have compassion on people to the point where everyone around sees that? Absolutely. Does it draw a massive crowd? Absolutely. Is that Jesus' purpose? No. Jesus showed up as a man so he could die for us. 
And he's actually he's going to do that in a minute. And so when Jesus throughout the Gospels, when he heals someone or something takes place and he says, do not go and share this. Jesus is not after his popularity on earth in terms of the ministry he's doing. He's concerned with his mission in bringing about the redemption of man in God's plan. That's why he's here. And so he's not letting, letting them speak. He's driving them out. He's healing people. In verse 35, it says, very early in the morning, or it's actually late at night, early in the morning, so it's dark outside. While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary pray, place where he prayed. Again, you have in Scripture the three basic things that are being communicated, who God is, who man is, and then how we respond And as we walk through the Gospels, we see this idea of following Jesus and doing what Jesus did. You have a very practical application of what does it mean or what do I now do as a follower of Christ? What are some basic things that I need to be doing? One of those is talking with God on a regular basis. And we see Jesus do that throughout his ministry. And again, he does these things when it's not convenient. When do people show up at the doorpost knocking on the door with sick people and demon-possessed people to be to find compassion, to find healing, to find love, to find out what is going on and what God is doing. It's at a time when it's inconvenient. It's in the evening at dinner time. And what does Jesus do? He responds to these people. When do we see Jesus get up and go out to a place where there, no, there is no one else and sit down to have a conversation with the Father? When is that? It's early in the morning when it's inconvenient. We find that as we are supposed to respond to God, respond to people, we're not always going to find that when it's convenient for us. And, and, and this is this is a very simple, very basic essential of being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, that I spend time with God consistently. Whether it's convenient for me or not. If I'm tired, big deal. If I had a long day at work, so what? And it's very practical from Jesus that he gets up early in the morning after doing all day of ministry, after teaching in the synagogue, going from the synagogue in the evening, having a meal, being bombarded by the crowd. He then gets up early to go and pray. Something that many of us probably do not do. And and, and something that's very basic, something we miss out on. I was teaching a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, uh, I was teaching in Ephesians. Beginning of Ephesians, Paul is addressing them, and he's talking about the prayer that he makes for those people. And the prayer of encouragement, uh, you know, Paul writes, I heard about the faith that you had, I began to pray for you. Not only to pray for you, but specifically that God would impart to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would have this full knowledge of God, a better working, a better understanding of who God is, so that as you followed him, as you worshipped him, you could do so in a better manner. And this whole concept of prayer, in a sense, carries a... Prayer is something that we often, if we don't engage in, we miss out on things that we don't fully understand. We miss out on something that is very powerful. I told the story last week, of Ryan and I were in an argument, one of the biggest arguments we've ever been in, um, it, one to where I'm in the closet, I'm throwing clothes in a rage out of the out of the closet, yelling, "You need to leave the house now," um, which I'm sure none of you have ever been in a fight like that if you're married. But it was amazing. And so, in the middle of this fight, as the fight is dying down, finally, well, dying to, in terms of 
the intensity, we're still both very angry. My wife decides that, hey, you need to go in another room and you need to pray, which if you don't know, that's the last thing a wife needs to say to a pastor, her husband. You need to go pray. Why? Because I'm the I'm the pastor. I know what it is I need to pray. And this is not the moment. And so she begins to pray out loud. And I am the king of no cheese, okay? And cheese on the sandwich is great. On pizza, that kind of stuff, fantastic. On the salad, shredded, fantastic. But in terms of, like, spirituality, if you're cheesy, I'm out. Totally. And my wife begins to pray out loud, and I take that as, okay, this is a cheese fest, I'm out. And so I walk out the door, go sit in the media room, right? And I am livid, just livid. And in slapping me in the face within two minutes, literally, it wasn't even two minutes, I'm sitting on the couch and realize how stupid I am in, in the whole thing that's gone on and how wrong I've been. And so in literally less than 120 seconds, the the power of my wife praying out loud, as cheesy as it was, literally God takes that and changes my entire attitude, my entire heart in recognizing, hey, dummy, you're broken. Get your rear end in there and say you're sorry, stupid. And begin to work through that. And it was amazing. It was one of those things that, uh, I think too often we forget the significance that prayer can play in our lives and our walk, in our, our worship with God and the way that we treat other people, our relationships and what God is doing with us in His kingdom. If we're not spending time praying for our families, praying for our kids, praying for our friends, praying for our coworkers, we are missing out on seeing God move and being able to participate in making a petition for people to God. And then seeing him respond and work in the lives of people. So God is praying. Jesus is praying. And he's doing so when it's inconvenient. And then it says, verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. So he doesn't tell anybody. He gets up. He leaves. He's not worried about it. He's going. He's praying. Peter and his companions look up. Where's Jesus? They go to look for him. Verse 37. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Are you kidding me? You are the rock star. Where did you go? Tell somebody when you leave. And Jesus replies to him, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Again, you see Jesus as four men are following him and then others will will add to that, equaling 12 and then minus one, there'll be 11 that he sends out to do the mission of the New Testament church and sharing the gospel and spreading that to the world. Jesus is training these men. Here's what we're doing. In chapter one, the beginning of he calls these four men and says, hey, come and follow me. And it's this idea of a rabbi, student and disciples, which they will walk behind him. They will watch. They will learn. They will build theology. And then they will go and do as their teacher did. And so that is what he's showing them. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to travel around. You're going to go to different towns. You're going to have compassion. You're going to love people. You're going to spend time praying. You're going to go into the synagogues. You're going to cast out demons, and you're going to bring the message of God. Here we go. And again, this whole idea, what is Jesus' purpose? What is he after here? The disciples show up and say, hey, there's a whole crowd. We're all looking for you. You're the guy. And Jesus says, it's time for us to go. Why? Because his main purpose is not to build his popularity. He's not trying to draw a big crowd. That just happens because of who he is. But his purpose is not not let me go back to the crowd that I've already drawn, I've already dealt with, I've already spread this message, I've already healed people. Let's move on and keep going. 
in this concept. He's not building popularity. Jesus has come to bring redemption. And so that's what he's doing. He says, let us go somewhere else. And then in verse 4, he says, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Or a man with an infectious disease, it could be a range of things, and we often just translate that leprosy because it's easy for us. But it says he comes to him and he's begging him on his knees, which is added later uh, in later manuscripts. It says he's on his knees and he says to him, if you are willing or if you wish, you can make me clean. This is very interesting because a man comes, he is sick, he has a physical ailment, one that typically casts him out, being making him unclean, at least in worship practices, more than likely just in society in general. And he comes to Jesus and says, not, hey, will you heal me? But he comes up to him and says, hey, if you're willing, if you wish, if you want to, you have the capability of making me whole again. Which is a way of making a request. But at the same time, the man comes up and simply is recognizing. I'm, I'm recognizing to the point of the, to the extent that I have the knowledge to so far that you are able to do this. And expressing his desire, which is a good way for us to express our desires in, in working in our lives. When we go and we're making petitions to God for ourselves, for our family, for whatever. A good layout of how to do that, a good formula or a, a good outline is the way that this man comes to Jesus. He comes begging on his knees, humble and broken, and just recognizes, God, you're willing, if you're willing, you're able to do this. It was very interesting. Verse 41, it says, filled with compassion, Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man. Now, the early manuscripts will also carry this tone of anger in this as well. Which, which is also interesting. Why Mark communicate in writing? Jesus has compassion, but at the same time, it carries a tone of anger in the way he responds to the man. Now, we were, we did a mission trip to Hawaii summer before last. Uh, we went to Molokai, and on Molokai, Molokai was actually, uh, the island that was devoted. How do you, how would you say that? That's where they put the people who had leprosy. I don't know, dedicated for that purpose. Uh, 200 plus years ago. Um, and we actually got to go and see that there's a leper colony that's still active. There are a handful of people who still have uh, leprosy, but it's not active. It's been stopped, and I won't go through the whole thing. Regardless, you, you can go in and overlook this um, leper community, and you can, you can read through uh, different historical documents and different things that happen. You can see the history of the island and how they did things, and you can see where people got dropped off. But it was... It was such a heavy experience as we sat up there with the students who went with us and the the, the wife of the pastor of the church we worked with um, kind of walked us through the history of and how things worked out and how things played out. And it was such a devastating, such a sad moment to go back and to learn of the way people were treated who have this disease and the way humanity typically responds to that kind of concept. You had a, you had an island people, and when someone was infected with this disease, they would bring them in a boat, and I don't know, a few hundred yards offshore, they would stop the boat, and they would throw the people off of the boat, and they would have to swim in these 200 yards from where they were dropped off to the actual island, because there were rocks in the ships if they came in, they would hit these rocks and stuff. Not only did they have... Um, just physical obstacles of getting boats in, it's also shark-infested waters. And so you have shark-infested waters, you have a boat that would come up, they would 
either throw these people off or make them jump off who had leprosy, meaning they have open sores and they're bleeding. And what happens when you're in shark infested waters when you're bleeding? Well, you get attacked by sharks. And so it's a miracle that you just make it from the boat all the way to the island. And once you get to the island, it's, it's a whole new, it's just a mess of things that, that happen. But as they were telling the story, they started beginning to just tell us the people that they would do this with. And just when we think of leprosy, at least in the New Testament, at least in my mind, anytime I've read a story, it's always with an adult. Well, they begin to tell us in telling the story, they've got like eight-year-olds, six-year-olds who get this disease they bring in and toss off the boat. And it's... Literally, I mean, humanity, when it comes to things like that, just in general, as a, as a whole, humans will just, compassion, forget about it. And, and much like that whole situation uh, in Molokai and the way people were treated from children all the way to, uh, you know, aged adults, it's just, it's not done with love, it's not done with compassion, it's done with, oh, you're sick, get on the boat, we're taking you. You're out of here. And, and I mean, there were, there were stories of family members um, who would find uncles would find out about nieces or nephews and turn them in and have them taken. I mean, it was just it was unbelievable. The stories we heard and much like that, you've got similar responses to people with these diseases in this culture to the point where when a man comes up. In that situation Jesus' automatic recognition of how this person is treated in the society brings a tone of anger in his response because the way that we as humans treat others who are sick. And so Jesus being filled with compassion that carries this tone of anger, it says he reaches out his hand and he touches the man. And here you have... I have two accounts. Mark is telling stories of people who are sick. You've got Peter's mother-in-law. She's got a fever. What's the last thing you want to do with somebody with a fever? Grab a hold of them. Well, multiply that by a hundred with somebody who has an infectious skin disease. How do you get that? How is that transmitted? Through physical touch. And again, Jesus does, does multiple things in healing people and the way he goes about it and actually how the, the account transpires. But here specifically, you have a man who comes up with an infectious skin disease. He's on his knees. He's begging Jesus. And Jesus responds with compassion, love, and a tone of anger. And he reaches out inside this culture, inside this community, and he touches the man. Jesus commits multiple offenses. One, just the physical preservation, self-preservation offense that you reach out and touch someone with an infectious skin disease. That's a no-no. Not only that, you have someone with leprosy inside the Jewish community during this time period, or Jewish community in general, they're deemed spiritually unclean. They don't get to take part in worship. They don't get to take part in the festivals, in the feasts, in the normal everyday, everyday happenings of life they're not included in anymore because they are unclean. They are unfit to be a part of and function inside society now. And Jesus goes as far, not only just to speak with the man, but to physically touch the man. And he responds with him. He reaches out, he touches him, and he says, I am willing, or I am wanting, or I am wishing. And then he commands him, be clean. 
And Mark writes and says, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Again, we see this word immediately pop up. Mark writes, uh, we talked about it's kind of his transition word. He uses the thing all the time. But especially with encounters, when Jesus is telling somebody to do something, what happens next after Jesus commands is immediate. And again, it carries this sense in this argument of Jesus being divine. When he says something, when he does something, when he commands somebody, it's automatic, the response. Jesus tells his disciples, hey, come and follow me. Immediately, they drop their nets, they get out of their boat. Jesus looks at a man, he grabs him, or he reaches out, he touches him, and he says, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy leaves him. Jesus commands demons to come out, and immediately they respond in obedience and do what he says. This idea that Jesus is divine, he is God with flesh on and able to do these things. When he makes a command, it happens. Verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you do not tell uh, this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So <clears throat> during this time period, if you had one of these diseases and you were healed, um, whether that be through a miracle, whether it be through medicine, whatever it was, there was a process of cleansing that had to take place. You had to make a sacrifice. The priest had to look at you. A priest had to deem you. Yes, you are clean. And then you could go move from there and function again in society as someone who is clean. You could participate in worship. You could do all those things. And so here Jesus gives him a strong warning. What I want you to do is not go from here and share what it is that I've done for you, but rather I want you to go and abide by the law that was given to Moses and do what you're supposed to do. And so in one sense, Jesus still has respect for the authority of the law that was passed through Moses, that God gave Moses for the people to live by. Hey, go and follow what you're supposed to do. But not only that, again, this whole idea, Jesus is not there to promote his popularity, but he's there to bring the redemption of man. So he heals a man. Do not go tell people. But the man responds. And this is one that's interesting because he tells him sternly, don't go do this. A minute ago, he said, be clean. Immediately, the man's clean. Jesus calls disciples and he says, get out of your boat. Follow me. Immediately, they get out of the boat and they follow him. Jesus tells a demon and he casts him, drives him out and says, leave the man, shut up and leave the man. Immediately he leaves the man. But here Jesus heals the man and he says, don't tell anyone. And the man in verse 45, it says, instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Which is very interesting. Again, we just talked about when Jesus says something, what happens, what he says. But immediately after that. Don't go tell anyone this. And the man responds with, rather than going, making a sacrifice, appearing before a priest, and getting his certificate, let's say, not they're not really giving him one, but getting his, hey, stamp of approval, you're now clean. He immediately responds with, he goes out and begins to freely share this news about this Jesus who has healed him. To the point where it says, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Crazy. So here you have a man who has now found his freedom. He's lived with, for who knows how long, with this infectious disease where he can't function as a part of society. He's immediately healed after this encounter with Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus tells him, your next step is to go through the process of becoming functional in society once again. Go do that. In which you could find freedom, in which if you've ever been sick, 
uh, with something for, for a long period of time, and then you find healing and you're better, how do you feel? I feel free to function again the way I once did. It's even true with school. If you're going through school and you're doing, you know, college work or master's work, when you finally get done, how do you feel? Woohoo! Yes, I can function again. Thank the Lord. This is over. Life can begin. But yet this man, rather than going through the process that he's supposed to, that he can be what he was before in society, he tosses that and says, no, I'm going to share this message of what this man has done for me. We're going to make just a a symbolic move in terms of our freedom that we find in our our forgiveness, the correction, the redemption, the healing we find in Jesus. What is our response when that happens for us? It should be the same as this man. Let me run out and freely share with everyone. This is what God has done in my life. Now, I'm not talking just run around the street yelling, Jesus, Jesus, because that doesn't, I mean, it's not productive. But at the same time, this man is compelled so much to the degree that I am, I'm going to, I'm going to be disobedient to what Jesus has told me because I'm so compelled by what God has done in my life to go to share this with all of those around me. And it carries this symbolic picture of how we as Christians should be living to the point where we're sharing the gospel of what God has done with us freely. And it says the response of the people is that now Jesus can't enter the city, but they are coming to him from everywhere. There are crowds of people coming from all over the place to see Jesus. As this man has gone out to freely share, this is what's happened. What was more important to this man? The spreading of, hey, this is what God has done in my life, or this is what this man has done. I am obligated now to go and share this message or to go take care of myself. And he finds it. A more important task to go in to share, this is what has happened to me. And the response is more people begin to come to Jesus, which should be the same thing that we do as Christians. Our functioning, our self, selfishness should not play into what is my next step in following Jesus. I mean, we we still have to live, we still have to do our jobs, we still have to exist in our society, we still have to deal with money, and we still have to raise children, we still have to take care of family, we have to do all of those things. But at the same time, the forefront of what we do should now be, I'm worshiping God, and I'm pursuing spreading the gospel for His kingdom. Let's pray. Dear God, come here now, just thank you again for another night to sit down to study your word. We thank you for what you've done, uh, and becoming man so that we could know you, God. We praise and worship you uh, again just for for making us, for creating us, for loving us in spite of ourselves. Um, Not only that, but making a way that we could know you, we we could find uh, forgiveness, correction, freedom in a relationship with you, God. We pray for opportunities this week to love people, to share you with them, God. Um, We just pray that you will make us productive for your kingdom. Uh, We pray that. uh, Pray and thank you uh, for all you've done. Your question, we pray. Amen.